Hi everybody, I'd like to uh, call the meeting to order, so please uh, gather yourselves. Uh, welcome everyone to the 692nd regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. And I'd like to begin as we normally do with the Pledge of Allegiance, so would you all please stand. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. Please be seated. I'd like to remind everyone that there's still plenty of time to uh, buy uh, raffle tickets, so uh, see uh, Rob or Cindy, and they'll be happy to uh, take your money for battlefield preservation. And also, please uh, let me take this opportunity to thank you all for allowing me to be your president this year. This year has gone by very quickly, just like a heartbeat. I would especially like to thank some of you by name for making my job a lot easier. Uh, Ray Radovich for doing a spectacular job on the battlefield tour. Uh, Mary Beth Foley. Mary Beth Foley for doing yeoman work handling the uh, dinner reservations. Uh, Bruce Allardyce for doing such a great job as editor of the newsletter. Uh, Mark Matranga for so ably handling the checkbook. And uh, Jerry Allen and Roger Bond for being so helpful in getting me in this position and for being generous with their time and advice. Thank, uh, thank you, too. And thanks to the staff here at the Holiday Inn. Um, it's been an honor, so let's eat. <laughs> Everybody, uh, while we're, have, we're being served our dessert, I'd like to make a few announcements. Uh, first, our uh, Civil War Assessment Centennial Minutes. This date, June 11, 1860, 150 years ago today. Uh, Stephen A. Douglas wrote to fellow Illinoisan William A. Richardson, who uh, would, in a few years would succeed him as senator from Illinois. This was after the uh, Democrats had the convention had broken up in um, in um, Charleston, and the Southern uh, delegates were meeting in Richmond on this very date, 150 years ago. Uh, he wrote to Richardson, "I learned there is imminent danger that the Democratic Party will be demoralized if not destroyed by the breaking up of the convention." Such a result would inevitably expose the country to the perils of sectional strife between the northern and southern partisans of congressional intervention upon the subject of slavery in the territories. I firmly and conscientiously believe that there is no safety for the country, no hope for the preservation of the Union, except for a firm and rigid adherence to the doctrine of non-intervention by Congress with slavery in the territories. Intervention means disunion, hence the doctrine of non-intervention must be maintained at all hazards. So that's fraught, honestly fraught with peril, that, uh, that letter. Uh, a few announcements. First, I'd like to remind everyone about the new uh, website address, um, www.chicagocivilwarroundtable, uh, I'm sorry, chicagocwrt.org. So a few people have, um, have um, weren't aware of that, so uh, please, uh, please be aware of that. Uh, a few other announcements. Uh, I'd like to, everyone to know that Ed Bars, our friend Ed Bars, will be at the... Uh, um, Abraham Lincoln Bookshop on Wednesday, June 16 at 6 uh, p.m., uh, signing copies of his new book, uh, Receding Tide, Gettysburg and Vicksburg, The Battles That Changed the Civil War. And if you can't make it in person, uh, it'll be webcast, and you can uh, watch online, maybe email questions to Ed if you can't make it in person. But if you can, uh, please do so. Uh, there are flyers on this uh, event, too, on all your tables, so please pick one up. Also, uh, there are flyers uh, about a, a new project for the um, a special campaign to reconstruct the two Camp Douglas prison camp barracks on the original site of the camp 
as an interpretive and educational site. Uh, David Keller is the man behind this. Uh, his contact information is on the flyer, so if you have any ideas for him, want to get a hold of him, and um, he'd be glad to hear uh, uh, what, uh, what you have to say because he reached out to our organization, and uh, whatever help we can give him, uh, he would greatly appreciate that. Uh, a few other announcements of uh, promoting some of our own. Uh, Bjorn Skaptison will be up in Kenosha for the second anniversary of the Kenosha Civil War Museum on uh, June 12th and 13th. He will be speaking on Wisconsin at Shiloh. Uh, Rob Girardi will be making up his snow date up in Milwaukee on June 17th, uh, speaking, um, doing his talk on uh, railroad defenses in the Atlanta campaign. Um, our own Leslie Goddard Allardyce will be um, Clara Barton at the John Butler chapter of the National Society of Daughters of the Union uh, in Lyle on June 19th and the Shreveport Bar Association on June 23rd. And also, I'd like to remind everyone about the Douglas Association Luncheon. That's tomorrow at noon at the Union League Club. Harold Holzer will be the speaker. He'll be talking on the Lincoln-Douglas presidential campaign of 1860. Uh, now I'd like to come call up uh, Roger Bond to talk about the uh, Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable. Okay, you have some yellow sheets around and some in the back announcing the Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable's annual banquet. Uh, the speaker is our own past president, Dan Weinberg, dealing in history, adventures through historical artifacts. As you can imagine, there's been a, a few interesting things that have gone through his hands at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, but the interesting part is really the story that he has to tell about the acquisition and the people involved in them. That's what makes it interesting. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is we said, please make your reservation by May 31st, and I should have added, but if you make it by the evening of Tuesday the, 8th, the 16th, that'll be just fine, so you could still sign up. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Now I'd like to call up Marshall Krolick to talk about uh, Al Meyer. Unfortunately, 90, probably 95% or more of the people in this room did not know Al. He moved to Florida 20-some years ago, and um, that is truly a shame because Al was a very, very special member of this organization who prided himself on knowing absolutely nothing about the Civil War. <laughs> is that why he gave me the award? <laughs> we did have an Al Meyer Award a few years ago, but Al was... What, what this organization epitomizes, friendship, fellowship, comradeship, and scholarship. I think he knew a lot more than he claimed to know. But his magic tricks, his smile buttons, and those of you who have read the, uh, the little blurb in the hard copy of the newsletter uh, will know what I'm referring to, um, were very, very special to all of us. Uh, Al was 101 when he passed away. The night before his death, he spent a pleasant evening playing poker with the friends that he, uh, in the building where he lived in Florida, uh, where he resided with his girlfriend. Uh, we won't go into any further details about that. But uh, that was Al. Um, many of us participated in what used to be called the gratis aspect of the roundtable. Uh, there's gratis law, there was gratis accounting, and there was gratis printing. Gratis printing was Al who was responsible for all of the um, displays and et cetera and things like our poster board over there uh, that were able to be uh, 
graphically uh, designed for us. So he was a very, very special person who I would ask all of you to give a thought to, even though you didn't know him, and to realize that he was what this organization is all about. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you very much. And now uh, Bob Stroller to tell us about next year's Battlefield Tour. Marshall, I just have one question. Did he, did he, was he born in 09 because he probably didn't see the Cubs? He didn't see the Cubs win the, win the World Series in 08. Okay. Uh, next year's Battlefield Tour, the 61st tour for this group, we're going, like I said, we didn't have much imagination, as I told you, last uh, month, so we're going right back to the same place we just came back from because we need to finish off the war. We're going to go to Appomattox. And we're also going to go to Petersburg, which is the American city that was, has been under siege longer than any other city in, in history here. Uh, we will have Ed Bars with us again, God willing. And also, uh, Will Green will be our other guide. In addition, we're going to have fun night at uh, Pamplin Park. So that should be interesting because it's a wonderful, it's like the Disney World of the Civil War. Uh, in any event, I'm, I'm, I hope all of you can attend, and we're looking for a big turnout for that, and it'll be two buses. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Looking forward to it. Uh, a few reminders before we have our break. Uh, this uh, uh, meeting and the talk, like uh, all the previous ones, will be uh, recorded, and so uh, if you want to uh, listen to this one later on or any of the other previous talks we've had at the roundtable, see Hal, our uh, tape uh, librarian. He'd be happy to uh, take your money and uh, you can listen to an excellent uh, Civil War talk. Also, I want to remind everyone that Mr. Korstein will be having uh, copies of his books for sale after the uh, event, so if you haven't already bought a copy, um, please see him. He'd be happy to take your money, too. Uh, uh, there's still time to buy money. Uh, speaking of money, and um, there's still plenty of time to uh, buy raffle tickets, so goes for battlefield preservation, which is one of the things we're all about. So please, uh, if you haven't already, uh, go see uh, Rob or, or Cindy. Also, I want to remind everyone, too, that uh, to, uh, before the talk begins, to turn off your cell phones or any other electronic device that might make a funny noise so it won't interrupt the talk. Um, and uh, I guess we're going to be taking a break now, and um, we'll be reconvene the meeting in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. Thank you. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, Please be seated so we can uh, proceed with the proceedings. Uh, first, I'd like to call up uh, Donna to tell us about guests and new members. Shorty's here. <laughs> well, we have our special guest, John Forstein, our speaker. Please stand up. <laughs> Melissa Abel, a friend of Tom's. This one? Mm -hmm. And let's see, Father, Father, Bill Trescott, Father of Tom. Raina Boyles. Raina has a great, great grandfather who was Captain James A. Sexton who fought at the Battle of Franklin. Stephen Boyles, Randy Doler, 
Paul Lange, nephew of the Allens. Sam Sachs, friend of Don Turner, and that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. And now uh, it's raffle time. Raffle time. Don't forget, uh, oh, here's my lackey. <laughs> I've been called worse. Hi, lackey. <laughs> well, let's start right out. Where's our speaker? There he is. <laughs> and, and they're all true, sadly enough. Five two three five zero four. Anybody? <laughs> five two three five zero four. Okay. Do you have it? <laughs> Next. <laughs> Five, two, three, six, three, zero. We have a winner. <laughs> Is that a bingo? <laughs> Don't forget we have the Battlefield Bookshelf over there where you can just walk away with the price. The book for a price. We have the note cards for 10 bucks, and we have copies of Gail Pewitt's book, uh, which he shares the proceeds with, with Battlefield Preservation. <laughs> we would like to finish today. <laughs> 523617. Oh. <laughs> Same people all the time. Take a ticket. A little bit like the lottery. You can't win if you don't play. Five, two, three, five, seven, six. Spirit of 76. We raised $200 tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Rob, and thank you, everyone who uh, bought tickets. And now, yes, it's that time again for our much beloved, much reviled, and well, a whole lot of whatever. Uh, Dave Zucker with the quiz. <laughs> I am reminded yet again of Harry Truman's famous phrase. No matter what you do in this world, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. Um, let me get on with the quiz. I do apologize, however, for two errors that fortunately popped up on here. Uh, John Korstein's name was misspelled, 
And in addition, uh, the correct name of the Confederate Navy Secretary was Stephen Mallory. It doesn't matter what you put down, you were given credit for that. As to the rest of this, all righty. Name the designer of the USS Monitor. That was John Erickson. Now, for those of you folks who thought, well, well they've messed up uh, with the name of the person who commanded the Virginia on the day of her battle with the Monitor, it was not Franklin Buchanan. Captain Buchanan had been shot on deck by Union Army gunfire. He was wounded. He had foolishly stormed out onto the deck when, after the battle with the Cumberland and so on, when Union Army troops opened fire, and he pulled out a rifle and shot back. And they shot him, and he was in a hospital on the day of the battle, and his exec, Lieutenant Catesby A.P. Roger Jones, was in command. A footnote, the other people mentioned on the monitor, David Porter, of course, was the Union Navy Admiral, and Gustavus Vasa Fox was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. As to the other people there besides Lieutenant Catesby, A.P. Roger Jones, who, as I have said, was the person who actually was in command of the Virginia on the day of the battle. Raphael Semmes was the commander of the Alabama, the Confederate uh, Raider. And as for Victor Henry, that's the fictional character from, if he really existed, he would be shocked to have been placed in that company, since that's the fictional character that Robert Mitchum played in Winds of War and War and Remembrance, who was a very, very dutiful U.S. Navy officer in World War II. Name the commander of the monitor who was wounded at his post. That was John L. Warden. And uh, today we would give such a man the Purple Heart. Samuel DuPont, of course, um, was the Union Admiral who served elsewhere in the war. And Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner was another hero, was a real person, but another figure from World War II. Uh, give the location of the battle between the two ironclads. That was at Hampton Roads. Georgian Bay is an arm of Lake Huron, and Ford Island is located in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> there were a number of 100s, a Blackhawk fan who calls himself Pierre Pilat, uh, Paula W. Cindy, Dan J, Nathaniel Lyon, I thought he had died, Stephen Cameron, I thought, uh, let's see here, Comandante El Marco, White Sox Bruce, who leaves no doubt of his sympathies, <laughs> Chuck Roast, <laughs> Randy Dollar. Hal, Roger Bond, Janet, Kurt, the person who didn't sign it, signed their form and who we have dubbed the unknown quiz taker, <laughs> Captain Nemo, and David Glasgow Farragut. I thought he was dead. That's the quiz. Thank you, Dave, for your usual stellar job. And now, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce to our group, who will be speaking tonight on Battle of the Ironclads, John V. Korstein.
spring 1862 was a dark time for the Confederacy. Defeats along the Mississippi River, along the North Carolina Sounds, a huge army was poised in Washington, D.C., ready to strike at Richmond. And then on the morning of March 8, 1862, the CSS Virginia will steam into Hampton Roads and change naval warfare forever and change the tide of the war that year. Well, let me tell you, the Battle of the Ironclads, which actually is a two-day battle, will actually begin sometime before because it's all about, you know, we talk about the Civil War being a war of technology, a war of change. Well, indeed it was, but many of those changes were all occurring before the war began. Ironclads were a necessity because of the change in ordnance, and ordnance, of course, began to change with the development of the explosive shell. Now, the explosive shell was really proven to be a bad weapon for naval ships thanks to a French military officer, Brigadier General um, uh, Paxenhans. And Paxenhans, Henry Paxenhans, will develop uh, uh, shell guns for use in naval warfare. And he actually proves uh, through several books and also testing that shell guns can destroy a wooden ship just like that. The explosive shell, when you think about a wooden ship, is very nasty because, you know, back in the old days, we had round balls and we fired them at a ship. It might punch a hole through the side of a ship or might bounce off, but when it does punch through the side, it kind of like a bowling ball. Explosive shells will hit the side of a ship. It will explode, creating a ragged hole, and which is hard to to fix by the carpenters on board the ships. It will send splinters and shrapnel across the deck as anti-personnel, and it sends sparks. And of course, sparks in wooden ships are not good. Now, we really see the advent also of steam power. Steam power is something that will really be developed uh, for naval purposes during the War of 1812. Of course, Robert Fulton will put out the first um, warship uh, that is called the Fulton, and then they will build another one called the Fulton II. But really, it is not until the 1840s that we start to see steam power being used by most navies, most modern navies. And of course, the U.S. Navy is uh, one that takes up steam power. Now, at first, the steam power is going to use what are called paddle wheels, and paddle wheels, really great. You get to move around, but the trouble is your motive power is exposed to gunfire. Fire. The paddle wheels themselves, you knock one of them out, and you're not going to be able to go in a straight line. And number two, if the engines that work those paddle wheels are called walking beam engines as they sat up on the deck. So I had a couple things to shoot at, plus the admiral's were a little disappointed because they didn't have as much broadside because you had those big paddle wheels. And so uh, we weren't that happy. And all of a sudden, along comes two men, Francis Pettit Smith and John Erickson. And they, simultaneously in 1839, will create the screw propeller. A screw propeller is a pretty neat thing because that means my engines get to be below the waterline, and by being below the waterline, they are protected from shot and shell, so my systems are going to work well. These technologies are all going to come together to a certain extent during the Crimean War. And as you all know, the first naval battle of the Crimean War on November 2nd, 1853, the Battle of Sinope, will see the Russians be able to destroy a Turkish fleet completely. Eight Russian ships against 21 Turkish ships. The Turkish Navy was annihilated on that day. Well, the European powers all took a, a took big eye look at this, and they realized that how can we have our ability to pass 
casemated forts that are defending Sevastopol. And so they will decide to build what are called floating iron-cased batteries. And those floating iron-cased batteries will actually be towed into action. And in 1854, they will capture a fort known as Kinburn below Sevastopol. All the navies start to pay attention. In fact, the French will lay down and build a ironclad frigate called Le Glorie. And that frigate, of course, is typically looking just like a regular frigate, except it has um, iron on its size, plated iron, iron totaling four inches. The English are not to be outdone, and they will start building ironclads themselves. In fact, the one they build will be pretty awesome because it is iron hull construction uh, completely. Instead of being wood construction with iron plating on top, it is backed by um, 20 inches of teak, and the ship is called the Warrior, and actually uh, it could steam with sails 18 knots which is real fast in 1861, let me tell you. Especially when you think the monitor is going to go seven knots, okay? So it also is armed with 80-pounder Armstrong guns. It is the most powerful ship afloat. Well, I want to tell you. The U.S. Navy did not pay attention to these things. In fact, when we decide to modernize during the 1850s, we go with what is called the steam screw frigate, which we think is a real great idea for our cruising Navy. The steam screw frigate, the first one is going to be known as the Merrimack. And the Merrimack, always spell it with a K because it's named for the Merrimack River in New Hampshire. And we know that to be true because you look at the sail plans and you see it written there, plus Franklin Pierce a native of Merrimack County, New Hampshire, will actually sign the appropriation bill. So always spell it with a K. A lot of people drop that K, but this reminds you not to anymore. Uh, the, the big thing, and there'll be a quiz maybe later. Uh, okay, don't forget that one. Uh, the great thing is, is that the Merrimack will be 302 feet in length. It's armed with 44 guns, 9-inch Dahlgrens, and it has a steam power plant. Well, the ship, when it is launched and commissioned in 1857, will be considered the novel example of naval architecture. We'll actually build five other ships in the Merrimack class. And, and this ship, when it goes to sea, everyone has great anticipation of its success. And I want to tell you, there are a lot of problems. Number one, it has a very sheer hull to make it a very fast sailor. And that means that she rolls very badly. And if you have a gun platform that rolls very badly, uh, you can imagine it doesn't work well. Added to that, the engines, well, it has, you know, because they want to really use it as a sailor so it can go out on long cruises. The propeller has what is called a banjo device, which would lift the propeller out of the water so it wouldn't be a drag on your sailing. Well, the trouble is the engines are so bad on the Merrimack that they can't even lift that banjo out of the water. In fact, Catesby App Roger Jones, who is on the first cruise of the Merrimack, will say that uh, her engines were only good for going in and out of port. Well, the ship will be sent back to Charlestown Navy Yard where she was built. The engines are rebuilt. However, although she serves as the flagship of the Pacific Squadron, by 8 February of 1860, she will be condemned and placed in ordinary at Gosport Navy Yard. Now, you all know Gosport Navy Yard at that time was the largest Navy Yard in the United States. It has a granite dry dock, iron foundries, uh, ship houses. In fact, there are 14 U.S. Navy ships in ordinary in the Elizabeth River there in Gosport. Gosport Navy Yard, by the way, is across the river from Norfolk, and it's actually in what's called Portsmouth, Virginia. 
So the bottom line is, is that here we have the ship that's also joined with vessels like the venerable USF United States. You also have the Columbia. You have the Pennsylvania that was there, the largest wooden sailing warship ever made by the United States Navy, a 140-gun ship. Can you imagine that? They're all sitting there in the mud, and the Merrimack is there with her. Now, uh, in 1861, the person who's going to be in command of the Navy Yard is a man known as Charles Stuart Macaulay. Uh, Macaulay is 67 years old. Uh, he's been in the U.S. Navy 55 years. Some people said he's just gotten a little too old for naval service, but everyone else all agrees he just drinks too much. Uh, now, he's in command there at Gosport, and what's going to happen, of course, as you know, spring 1861, oh my gosh, the secession crisis. In fact, as we know, even though the Deep South states join the Confederacy, Virginia stays loyal to the Union. However, Gideon Wells, then Secretary of the Navy, is going to be mindful of the crisis impending with the beginning of the bombardment on Fort Sumter. So as a result of that, Gideon Wells sends a telegram down to Charles Stuart Macaulay saying, you must do everything you can to defend the yard. You must do everything you can to defend the honor of the nation. You must do everything you can to get the Merrimack ready for sea. You must do all these things, but do not anger the Virginian. I leave it all to your discretion. Well, discretion and drinking, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I think you kind of lose it, right? And uh, so uh, the bottom line is at the moment of crisis, the U.S. Navy has the wrong person at Gosport Navy Yard. And in fact, when Virginia leaves the Union, William Booth Tolliver will bring up 800 Virginian volunteers. They'll go down outside the yard and clamor for the return of the yard to his rightful owner, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, I'll tell you right now, Macaulay doesn't know what to do. In fact, uh, Gideon Wells has sent down the chief engineer of the U.S. Navy, Benjamin Franklin Isherwood. Isherwood would put the engines back together of the Merrimack and get it ready to go to sea. And he goes to Macaulay and says, uh, on April 19th, I'm ready to take her out to sea. Macaulay says no. See, Macaulay not only drinks too much, he also, of his officer corps, 13 of them will join the Confederate Army, so you can, or the Navy, excuse me. And so you can imagine when they go into meetings, he's there saying, have another drink, uh, uh, and uh, let's not do that. And so actually he's getting bad advice, but I want to tell you, the pressure is so heavy on him, he will decide to abandon the yard. And at noon on April 20th, 1861, he'll order the workmen home and set the yard on fire. It is right when Hiram Paulding is bringing a task force down on board the Pawnee. They have stopped at Fortress Monroe to pick up some extra men and supplies, and then they steam up the Elizabeth River only to see the flames coming from the ships. Uh, I will tell you that uh, Hiram Paulding will go and make sure the destruction is as complete as possible. But the next morning, the Confederates will walk into the ashes of the yard, and there they'll find the wherewithal to build a navy, because they botched the destruction. Number one, you know, there are they're, they're 1,200 cannon laying on the quay at Gosport, and they, all they can do is spike the guns. They try to knock off the trunnions, and they can't do that. They're supposed to blow up the granite dry dock, but guess what? The petty officer, given that task, will decide that, well, if it blows up, it's going to send all that granite into my friend's homes over in Portsmouth, so we're not going to do that. So he breaks the powder trail. And 
when they set the Merrimack on fire, they'll also pull her seacocks. And my big question is, how well does a burning ship burn when it sinks? <laughs> Not well, right? Okay. The bottom line is the Confederates realize they've got this yard and they need a Navy. Remember, they have to defend 3,600 miles of coastline. They must keep their ports open for their cotton for cannon trade. So as a result of this, they will start to consider what to do. Now, of course, the Secretary of Navy uh, for the Confederacy um, is... Um, um, Stephen Russell Mallory. And Stephen Russell Mallory is five foot six. He's very roly-poly looking. Every morning he wakes up and has champagne and oysters. He's from Key West. And, and he uh, uh, basically had been a lawyer at 18. He had become a senator from Florida. He had been serving as chairman of the Senate's Committee on the Conduct of Naval Warfare. So he knows all about ironclads. And he says, we must think anew and act anew. We must come up with a weapon that matches the northern superiority. He knows that the Confederacy cannot build ship for ship to match the northern shipyards. So they must build a ship that heretofore has never been seen in naval warfare. And the big thing is, it must be an ironclad. Now, the Confederacy realizes the only place it can get ironclads is really over in England and France, but that is going to take time. So instead, they know they have to have some home-built ones. And Mallory looks around for who to help him, and he picks upon uh, a man known as um, Brooke. Um, uh, and John Mercer Brooke is an amazing scientist. He had worked for Matthew Fontaine Murray. Uh, he invented the bathosphere. Just a brilliant individual. He goes down to Norfolk, comes up with a concept of a casemated vessel with submerged ends, which gives it greater buoyancy and also that has a ram on it and has rifled cannon, which Brooke invents himself. And he says, that's what we need to do. But he's not a naval architect, so they call the naval constructor from Gosport, a man known as John Luke Porter, who says, oh my gosh, we can do this. Unfortunately, the Confederacy has no way of building marine engines. So there's a big question, what are we going to do? And uh, unfortunately, Victor Henry Randolph, who was a, uh, also a naval officer during the uh, Civil War, a Confederate, he had served in the U.S. Navy 58 years and had joined the Confederacy, never did much. But the bottom line is, is that Victor Randolph uh, it will uh, go on a tour trying to find out who can build maritime engines. They can't. So Brooke decides, why don't we just raise the Merrimack and use her engines. And then they, I say, well, don't take the engines out. Let's just use her hull. And so they'll put the ship in the dry dock, and they'll cut her down to her berth deck, which means she'll be 262 feet, 9 inches in length, and they begin putting a casemate on top. This is just a novel uh, use of adaptive use of materials at hand is really what the Confederates are doing. Now, eventually, the Merrimack will, as I said, be 262 feet in length. Uh, her casemate will be 170 feet in length. It will be pierced for 10 guns. They have four rifled cannon on board, two 7-inch book guns, uh, both uh, bow and stern rifles. And then they have two 6.4-inch rifles and three 9-inch Dahlgrens. One, two of those Dahlgrens, excuse me, they have six Dahlgrens, two of those Dahlgrens are going to be fitted to fire hotshot. Now, if you think about naval warfare, they developed in casemated forts 
hot shot. They get a furnace, heat up a cannonball, and they fire it at the enemy. And a red-hot cannonball hitting a wooden ship is not a good thing. So the Merrimack's being designed to be what? A wooden ship killer because the Confederates know who doesn't have an ironclad? The Northern Navy when they start their project in June of 1861. Well, the big thing is they also decide to put a 1,500-pound cast-iron ram on her bow. Now, that's because the Confederacy doesn't have a lot of gunpowder. So Brooke rationalizes, well, if we run out of gunpowder, all I have to do is steam around and ram everybody. Well, I want to tell you, you know, ramming ships stopped at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. And you want to know why? Because Don Juan of Austria fitted cannon on his ship, and when the Turks are charging at him, rowing their ship and trying to ram him, what does he do? Blows them out of the water. So, you know, John Mercer Brooke goes, well, we got iron on our sides. They can't blow us out of the water. So he goes, yay, okay? And so uh, they go, well, we'll put a ram on. In fact, Mallory says, like a bayonet charge of infantry, the ram will prove most disruptive to the enemy. Well, the trouble with the Confederate ironclad project is that although it starts in June, it's still not finished in January, and they rush. In fact, their railroads are so bad that they have to send the iron. The only place they can make the iron plate is in Tredegar Ironworks, and they got to send it down to Weldon, North Carolina, and then back up on another railroad up to Portsmouth, Virginia. So it takes time, and it just it's too much time. It it takes the Confederacy too long to make this ship happen, but nevertheless, on February 17th, 1862, they'll launch, Christian, and commission the Confederate ironclad as the CSS Virginia. And I just want to tell you all, you're not supposed to call her the Merrimack. As one of her crew members, William Norris, said, her name was that sweet, sonorous song, Virginia, not that northerly, nasally twang, Merrimack, uh, because in Virginia waters, um, she was made by Virginian hands with Virginian wood and Virginia iron, and in those waters, she will win a record unparalleled in naval warfare. Her name, indeed, is Virginia, so that will settle that. Uh, anyway, so anyway, she gets commissioned to Virginia, but the trouble is she needs a commander, and they look around. Now Mallory knows there's one person who needs to be in command, and that man is Franklin Buchanan. Franklin Buchanan was born in Baltimore, Maryland, on September 17, 1800. He is son, a grandson of a signer of the Declaration of Independence. His father was the founder of the Maryland Medical Society. At age 15, he joins the U.S. Navy, and he rises in esteem of all. He's called the beau idea of a naval officer. No man tread a quarterdeck braver than he. Well... Buchanan, of course, uh, will have a very good career. He will actually be the first superintendent of the United States Naval Academy uh, at Annapolis. He'll also be a hero during the Mexican War. He's also there with Perry when they open the door to Japan. In fact, he's in command of the Susquehanna when they're going into Edo Bay, and the Susquehanna has this Chinese pilot who will run the ship aground. And Buchanan, who stands five foot ten, he's got a hawk nose be bald, you know, he's got, he's got this, you know, he's very arbitrary guy. He takes this stern look across the deck that's so stern at the Chinese pilot, the pilot jumps overboard rather than get the wrath of Buchanan. <laughs> so anyway, at the outbreak of the war, Buchanan, of course, is commandant of the Washington Navy Yard, and actually everyone, everyone knew he was from Maryland. 
He married into the Tillman family in Talbot County, so they were a slaveocracy, members of the slaveocracy. Uh, he was a true Southerner, that's what he felt himself as. And actually, Lincoln goes to the marriage, the wedding of Buchanan's daughter, uh, who marries a Marine officer. And there, you know, Gideon Wilson says, you can't go there, it's uh, all a success. And uh, uh, Lincoln says, well, you know, I'm going to go. Uh, Fanny, Buchanan's youngest daughter, who's very well endowed, uh, actually has a Confederate flag sewn into her bodice, you know. And, and supposedly Lincoln, Lincoln won her over with chocolates. But anyway, uh, she sat on his lap. Uh, and, but the big thing is, is that when you have the Baltimore riots on April 19th, 1861, Buchanan thinks right away Maryland is going to leave the Union, so he'll resign his commission. Well, as you all know, Maryland doesn't leave the Union, and Buchanan goes, whoops, and he sends a letter to Gideon Wells, no, really, and he says, you know, I was a little hasty, man, I had my job back, and, and Gideon Wells writes, you're a traitor, you know, you're dismissed from the service. Well, you know, Buchanan is first the first free agent in the Civil War, <laughs> you know, when you think about it. Uh, he, he, if he can't serve for the U.S. Navy, what's he going to do? Because if there's a war going on, who's going to fight in it? Franklin Buchanan. He joins the Confederate Navy, and immediately he's assigned as head of the Office of Orders and Details, and then in late February he'll be assigned to the Virginia. He inspects the ship on the end of February and realizes it's not finished, but he also realizes he must take it out to action. And so he's got a crew of 350 men, and he's also assigned to the crew some of the finest officers, junior officers in the Confederate Navy, Case BF. Roger Jones, John Taylor Wood, uh, Hunter Davison. These are all people that are going to be luminaries later in the war. But uh, so he decides that he is going to attack the Union fleet on March 6th. Now I want to tell you, March 6th comes, there's this terrible gale that blows through Hampton Roads and blows up the coast. And Buchanan can't take the ship out because according to William Norris, the ship was as navigable as a waterlogged log. Um, Norris also said, you know, we really didn't know with each stroke of the engine, would we go forward, stop dead in the water, or turn turtle? Because uh, remember, those engines had spent six weeks in the bottom of the Elizabeth River, salt water, and they had already been condemned by the U.S. Navy. So they're not very good, okay? And plus, now they're an ironclad. So she makes five knots, though. The big thing is, the storm passes. And on the morning of March 8th, Buchanan orders that the ship be slushed down with ship's grease, which is a mixture of tallow and pig fat. Um, and he does that because the slope of the Virginia is a 35 degree, which is called the Bernard Principle, done by uh, um, John Gross Bernard, later chief engineer of the uh, Army of Potomac, and so that the shot will bounce off of it. That's typical Army today. Well, you know, he tells all the crew, Today we're going to take the vessel down river and we're going to go on a shakedown cruise, okay? So they go down eight miles, the Elizabeth River, the ship works, she steers all right, and uh, she actually hasn't sunk or the engine stopped. So when the vessel gets to the mouth of the Elizabeth River there at Craney Island and out in front of her, is the entire Union fleet, five major Union warships. At Newport News Point, there's the 24-gun sailing sloop of war, the Cumberland. Then there's the 52-gun sailing frigate, the Congress. Then there's the 47-gun steam screw frigate, the Minnesota. Then there's the 42-gun steam screw frigate, the Roanoke. And then there's the 50-gun sailing frigate, the St. Lawrence. And that's off of Fort Monroe.
well, here are these five major Union warships, over 200 guns on board those ships. And Buchanan will call his men onto the gun deck. He says, men, today we are going to do our duty, not just our duty, but more than our duty. Today we will attack the Union fleet. Some of you all have complained, I have not taken you close to the enemy. I will take you there now. Those ships must be taken to your cannons, to your death. We will sink before we surrender. Whoa, you can imagine the crew. It's supposed to be a shakedown cruise, you know? Shakedown cruise means we test the vessel, go back, and get ready to fight later, right? They're all shocked. In fact, the chief engineer or the chief surgeon of the Virginia, Dinwiddie Phillips, will come up to uh, Captain Buchanan and say, Captain Buchanan, how can we attack the Union fleet today? Our ship is untried. And Buchanan will say, if we sink the Federal fleet today, we know our ship is a success. If they sink us, we are indeed a failure. And with that, the Virginia steams into Hampton Roads, you know. And I want to tell you, it's Saturday. It's worse day in the U.S. Navy. They got all their undies hanging out for the yard arms, right? And, you know, all of a sudden, a lookout on board the Minnesota will call the officer of the deck and say, Sir, I think that things are coming. And they'll say, She looked like a floating barn roof with a chimney belching smoke. However... The commander of the Zouave, Arm Tug, will say she looked like a half-submerged crocodile intent on evil. Well, the Virginia takes an hour and a half to go across Hampton Roads. Now, y'all are not from Hampton Roads. I am, and and even with backups on our tunnels, you know, you can get across faster than that. This ship, you know, it's got a 22-foot draft, so she has to stay in this channel, and she only goes five knots. So she slowly makes her way towards Newport News Point. As she passes Newport News Point, there's a Union battery, which will fire a shot at her, and her consorts, the Beaufort, will fire back up. And actually, one shot uh, does hit the commandants of the camp butlers uh, uh, his com- the commandant's quarters anyway they go past that and as the Virginia passes the Congress the Congress will fire a broadside at the Virginia the shot for the Congress bounces off the side of the Virginia like peas from a pop gun well the Virginia you know and actually when the shot hits the side of the Virginia all the crew in the forward brook gun which is commanded by Charles Carroll Sims will duck and Sims says Stand up and be men. I've taken shot in open air stronger than that, you know. And they all fire back four shots. You know, they, they are broadside as four sh- guns. And that salvo will strike into the Cumberland. Hot shot rumbles through the Cumberland, or the Congress, excuse me. Uh, and uh, blood soon flows from, blood, no, it's blood, brains, and bones. Soon flows from her scuppers. The ship is mortally wounded. That that hot shot lodges right next to the magazine. The other three shots are all rifled, or one rifle. They're all shells, and so they just havoc is terrible. The Virginia, however, doesn't stop. She steams on towards the Cumberland. The Cumberland is commanded by a man known as. George Upham Morris. And Morris has his ship anchored, his broadsides facing right down river, and on they start firing at the oncoming Virginia, but nothing stops her. And the Virginia will eventually come and ram the Cumberland at her starboard forward quarter, creating a hole, according to John Taylor Wood, large enough for a horse and cart to ride through. The Cumberland is mortally wounded and begins sinking immediately. Robert Dabney Minor runs down the gun deck of the Virginia, shouting, Our cleaver has cut her open. Down in the engine room, E.A. Jack, 
will say, I remember our ship hitting the enemy's ship and uh, we shuddered when we did so. But then I felt our ship take on a dangerous tilt. That's right. Buchanan, when they rammed the Cumberland, Buchanan orders the engines in reserves. Remember I said the engines were bad, right? They don't go into reverse and she starts to go down with the Cumberland. As John Randolph Eggleston, a gunnery officer on board the Virginia, will say, like a, like a wasp. It seemed we could only sting once. However, a swell will come, turning the Virginia slightly. The weight of the Cumberland will rest on the ram, and the ram will break off, and the Virginia will float away about 50 feet. And then for the next half hour, the Cumberland's hanging in the water like that, and the two ships trade broadsides. It is the fiercest moment of naval combat in the Civil War. Three broadsides are fired from the Cumberland at the Virginia. In fact, most of the damage the Virginia will have during two days of fighting will be from the Cumberland. Her smokestack will be riddled so much, so much that uh, Dinwiddie Phillips will say a flock of crows could fly through it unimpeded. In fact, there are two gunners on the forward, Brook Gun and John Hunt and Jack Cronin. John Hunt turns to Jack Cronin and says, you know, don't it smell like hell here? And uh, he, the retort was, yeah, we'll soon be there. Because you got to realize that, you know, the shells exploding at the side of the Virginia, that ship grease is starting to cook, so to speak. It gets on fire. It's smoking. So basically you have the sulfurous odor of gunpowder. You have the stench of coal. And then you have bacon smell. You know, so you know, it's, it's, it's very uh, Dante-esque, I guess you would say. <laughs> Nevertheless, after a half hour, the Cumberland will shudder as George Upham Morris shouts to his crew, Give her another broadside, boys, as we go, and the Cumberland will sink, her flag still flying, defeated yet defiant. Well, the Virginia now will take a half hour to turn around. John Taylor Wood said she was, you know, like Noah's Ark. And so, uh, you know, she takes the time to turn around. And meanwhile, the Congress, commanded by Joseph Smith, will have run his ship aground under the batteries of Newport News Point. Well, Buchanan brings his ship within 150 yards of the Congress and then begins filling her with shot and shell. After a half hour, the Cumberland burning, the white flag will go up. Joseph Smith will have been killed. Well, Buchanan orders two of his armed tugs, the Beaufort and Raleigh, to go alongside, take the surrender, see if you can pull her off or burn her where she is. Well, the trouble is, remember that shot I told you the Beaufort had fired into Camp Butler? Well, that hit into the headquarters of a man known as Brigadier General Joseph King Fenno Mansfield, graduate of West Point class of 1819, and he sees all that. He's mad, and, and he sees what's going on. He orders his men down the beach to start firing at the Congress and at the Virginia. One of his officers comes up to him and says, we can't do that. They're under a flag of truce. And Mansfield says, I haven't surrendered, have I? And so, you know, the Beaufort and Raleigh will back away, and Buchanan's watching all this. says, you know, when you're in a battle and you're in an ironclad, where should you stay? Inside. Right. And Buchanan did not. Buchanan wanted to see what was going on. So he's out on top on the hurricane deck, as we call it, and he sees what's going on, sees those Union soldiers. He gets so enraged, he calls for below, gets a musket, starts shooting at the Union soldiers, and of course, what are they going to do but shoot back? He's shot in the hip, grievously wounded. He'll be taken on the gun deck, and he'll shout to the men, do not worry, men, the wound is not mortal. Then he turns to Catesby App Roger Jones, his second-in-command, and says, 
fill that damn Union vessel with hot shot. Fill her full of hot shot till she glows. Now he gives that order knowing his brother, Thomas McKean Buchanan, is on board. Nevertheless, after a half hour, the Congress is burning from stem to stern, and the Virginia now will come back into Hampton Roads because all those other Union ships had tried to come to the defense of the Congress in Cumberland. But guess what they had done? They had all run aground trying to cut through what is called Hampton Bar and the Middle Ground Shoals, and, and one of them, the Minnesota, is hard aground. But the trouble is, Darkness is coming across Hampton Roads. The tide is going out. The pilots are worried about whether the Virginia will get aground herself. So they go back to Sewell's Point, ready to destroy the Union fleet on the morrow. But I will tell you, like almost a miracle, as the burning Congress sends an eerie glow across Hampton Roads, into the harbor will come the, min the monitor. The Monitor uh, is uh, one of these just unbelievable vessels that uh, almost weren't built. In fact, the Monitor was the brainchild of John Erickson. And as you all know, John Erickson uh, was from Sweden. He was an ordnance officer, brilliant mind. He quits the Swedish army, goes to England, wants to make a lot of money. He, of course, invents the screw propeller, but he's not very successful. A man known as Robert Stockton will meet him there, a Union officer, very well-connected. He'll get him to come back to the United States, and they will build together the Princeton. And I don't know if you know about the Princeton, but it's the first steam screw frigate in the U.S. Navy. And this thing is beautiful, launched in 1844. Of course, Stockton's trying to take all the credit. Now, uh, but Erickson had designed the ship, built the engines, uh, actually designed and had fact manufactured all the shell guns, 12-inch shell guns, but Stockton insisted on doing one himself, which was called the Peacemaker, and it was 13-inch. And Erickson said, that gun's going to blow up. And Stockton says, well, well you just my gun's better than yours, that's all it is. And, uh, and so when actually they leave the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Stockton told Erickson the sailing time was two hours later than it was. So Erickson shows up and you know Stockton's going down to Washington Navy Yard. And they pull in and they have a great party. John Tyler's on board and, and actually he's He's a widower, and he's flirting with this girl known Julia Gardner, who's daughter of this representative uh, from Long Island. Actually, he takes her below for a special tour of uh, you know, the captain's quarters while all the senators and, co and cabinet members are up on deck like, drinking champagne and firing cannon. And they all insist, we're going to fire the peacemaker. And uh, they fire it, and it blows up. Julie Gardner goes, wow. But um, really, uh, several, several congressmen, I'm glad you caught it. Um, great thing about history is there's nothing but a high story. You know, when you think about it. And, uh, and this is all true stuff. The great thing is, is that because Tyler's going to marry Julia Gardner um, eight weeks later. So, um, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and I know Tyler's grandson, who still lives today. And uh, uh, because, well, anyway, I'll, it's another story. <laughs> Ty 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 Tyler's 57 and she's 24. So, you know, anyway. I don't know. Uh, so the bottom line is Erickson is a pariah in the U.S. Navy, and as a result of that, he will uh, not get any more work. In fact, he doesn't get paid for the Princeton work. 
So uh, he goes back up to Brooklyn and, and works as a, a naval engineer. And meanwhile, of course, when the, you know, there are no secrets during the Civil War. Uh, the Confederate newspapers, when they start building the Virginia, we're going to build an ironclad that can sink the entire Union fleet. Well, the Federals get wind of this, and they go, oh, my gosh, we need to build some ironclads ourselves. And so they'll set up an ironclad board, uh, which is staffed by Hiram Paulding, 73 years old, Joseph Smith, 74 years old, and Charles Horton Davis, who's 57 years old. These guys all like what? Sailing warships, right? The idea of ironclad doesn't work for them because they ask each other, when you get a piece of iron and you throw it on the water, what does it do? sink. You got a piece of wood, throw it on the water, what does it do? Float. So how do we have ironclads, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, th that's, that's their mindset. And uh, uh, so the big thing is, is that what's going to happen basically is that uh, they have several designs, that the 16 designs will be submitted. They throw out most of them as unpractical, and they will come down to two. One is the new Ironsides that looks just like uh, a French ironclad, and the other one is this one called the Galena, which is a frigate-looking ship with clapboard iron on it. Now, clapboard iron is not going to be very good, but, you know, the big thing is, is that uh, the ironclad board will ask the factorum behind the building of the Galena, uh, financier Cornelius Bushnell, how's that thing going to float? You know, is it going to be stable? And Bushnell goes, well, I don't know, you know, uh, and he goes, well, you need to find out, otherwise we won't give you the contract. Bushnell goes, oh my gosh, he goes back up to Brooklyn, he sees a friend of his, John Rensler, who says, look, the only guy I know who's going to give you the answers is this crazy guy over in Brooklyn, John Erickson, go see him. Well, Bushnell wants this big contract, goes to see Erickson, Erickson says, yeah, 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 you know, the thing's going to float, the reasons are these, and Bushnell says, thanks, and then Erickson says, well, by the way, while you're here, let me show you something. He goes in the closet, gets a cardboard model of this ship that never had been seen before. It will be known as the Monitor. Six-inch freeboard, everything's underneath the waterline, then there's a revolving turret. And Bushnell goes, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. Why didn't you show this to the Navy? And Erickson says, the Navy doesn't like me. Bushnell says, I know they do. And so he'll take the model, and he'll go down to Washington, and on en route, he sends a tele telegraph to his friend Gideon Wells and a guy he had supported running for president, Abraham Lincoln, you know. And so the next day, Bushnell shows up in the ironclad office. He sets that model right down the table and says, this is the answer. And Charles Horton Davis says, huh. If I believed in idolatry, I'd go out and worship it. That's something a sailor's eyes have never looked upon before. And when they find out it's an Erickson design, they say, take it out of here. It's another Erickson's folly. Well, all of a sudden, into the room comes who? Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln sees it. And he goes, you know, it kind of reminds me of what a country girl would say when she first put her foot in a silk stocking and exclaimed, there's really something in it. Uh, and uh, they kind of look at each other and go, okay, um, <laughs> right? And so they tell uh, Bushnell, look, we got a lot of questions about this thing, and if you can't answer them, we're not going to like it, and we really don't like it anyway, and we really don't like Erickson. So Bushnell says, I'll get your answers. He goes back up to Brooklyn, he sees Erickson, he says, you know, they love you, they love your plan, you need to come down, because I, you know, I can't answer these questions. So Bushnell brings Erickson down, Erickson walks into the ironclad boardroom the next day, and they all go, what are you doing here? They all know what Erickson looks like, and he says, I thought you liked my ship, we hate it. And then he launches into this little willoughby, all about the power of the little ship, and they're all so amazed that they say, we must build it and Erickson gets a contract. 
well, so does Bushnell because he's backing Erickson, of course. Um, and uh, uh, so they start building the ironclad. Uh, the contractor says they have to build in 100 days. They actually take 109 days, but, you know, it's forgiven. This ship, I want to tell you, has over 100 patented items on board. 33 of them are patented. The crew all lives under the water. That's never happened before, right? It's got this revolving turret, and, and that's all you really see on the vessel. The crew quarters are are ventilated with a crude air conditioning system. Uh, uh, the air is forced down into the engines. I mean, it is really a far-sighted vessel. You know, and Ericsson has is attends to every detail. In fact, you know, on warships beforehand, when you had as we call night waste, uh, you threw it over the side of the water, right? You know, it didn't matter. Um, however, you can't do that when you're below deck. So Ericsson invents the first pressurized commode. And the first person to use it is the ship surgeon Grenville Weeks. Doesn't hit the squitches right, and he gets blown <laughs> off of it, right? And uh, it said that's how it got his name, the Hopper, but I don't know. But <laughs> Nevertheless... It's my Vegas routine. What do you want? <laughs> These are all true stories. You know, that everyone said, well, where did, you know, and I, I, I've been studying ironclads my whole life and uh, written four books about them, and, and it's just so fascinating. So, and I'm trying to get it all into a tight format, so i got to talk faster. So the bottom line is, is that the ship is going to be built, she's going to be launched, the commander is going to be a man known as Lieutenant John Lomar Worden. Worden has been in the U.S. Navy since 1839. Uh, he is uh, very frail, five foot four, um, long beard, um, hiding his delicate features. It said that his ha handshake was as <coughs> delicate as a lady's. Uh, anyway. Um, he was uh, uh, a, uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help that. Um, anyway, uh, he is going to be, um, actually, he, he's more of a uh, technical officer. He serves at the Naval Observatory um, much of his career. Uh, actually, the outbreak of the war, he gets a special assignment to go down to Pensacola to deliver some messages about holding Fort Pickens. And, and he'll go down there right before Florida leaves the Union, wearing his uniform. He does it. Florida leaves the Union. Then he decides he's going to go back by train to Washington, and he's going to wear his uniform. They said, don't do that. And he goes, oh, no, I have to. And no and behold, he gets arrested, uh, and uh, uh, actually he's the first POW of the Civil War, and, and he will uh, uh, actually not be released until December of 1861. He then will be, uh, uh, he'll go back on sickly because he's very sickly from it, but his first assignment is going to be the monitor. In February, he's given orders to go to see if he wants to take command of it, of this third-rate ship, the monitor. It's a third-rate because it only is so long. It's 171 feet in length. It has a draft of 11 feet. Uh, it has two guns, two 11-inch Dahlgren guns, in that revolving turret. The only thing really above deck is going to be the pilot house right at the bow. And so you have a very simplistic ship that you can't really see of, but Worden tells Gideon Wells, I'm willing to be the agent to show its usefulness. Well, so... On March 6, 1862, catch that date, that's the day the Virginia wanted to go out and sink the Union fleet, but they had to wait two days, the Monitor will leave New York, and lo and behold, that same storm that passed through 
Hampton Roads will hit the monitor on our way down. You know, when you have a six-inch freeboard, it's a little nervous to be in 30-foot seas, you know. And, and, and the monitor is being towed by um, uh, the ship known as the Seth Lowe. And actually, you know, most ships that left New York, Brooklyn Navy Yard, everyone would line the warships cheering. Well, I have to tell you that the crew members recognized that no one was cheering them when they left. In fact, uh, you know, Worden actually musters them all from the receiving ship Sabine and North Carolina. However, many of those volunteers, as soon as they saw the ship, two of them deserted that very day, you know, and uh, because she just, she, as one person said, she did not appear to be a seagoing craft. And uh, uh, so she almost sinks twice on the way down, and she limps into Hampton Roads on the uh, late afternoon of March 8th. Now, she sees the firing going in distance. Actually, Worden says he witnesses all these transports and ships coming out of Hampton Roads like chickens chased by a fox. However, she doesn't get into Hampton Roads until around 8 o'clock. She pulls up next to the Roanoke, commanded by um, Robert Moore, uh, Marsden. Marsden, who's temporary in command of the squadron there in Hampton Roads, will say, look, I got orders to send you to Washington. You know, one thing about the Battle of the Ironclads, three hours after events take place in Hampton Roads, they know about them in Washington because they have a telegraph line that goes from you know, Camp Butler and Fort Monroe uh, underneath the Chesapeake Bay to the eastern shore all the way up to Wilmington and then down to Washington. So you can well imagine uh, that Washington already knows about what's happened. In fact, Lincoln uh, ha has ha called the sinking of the Congress in Cumberland the greatest calamity to strike the Union since Bull Run. Um, uh, Simeon Cameron will actually be so nervous about it all when they're having a cabinet meeting. He's looking out the windows at the White House, expecting the Virginia to be sailing up there and, and wants to sit, sink uh, ships in the Potomac. Uh, but everyone doesn't listen to him. But what's going to happen, basically, is that the monitor comes up to John Marsden. Marsden says, I got orders to send you to Washington right away, but the defense of Washington is right down here. I want you to go next to the Minnesota. The Minnesota's hard to ground, and even though they're going to try and float her at the high tide, you need to defend the Minnesota. Worden says, I will do so. Steams his ship over to the Minnesota. Uh, he hails it. Now, the monitor is nine feet off the, you know, water's surface. The Minnesota is about 45 feet above the water's surface. So Worden gets on top of his, uh, uh, his turret and hails up, and, and the commander of the Minnesota is a 47-year Navy veteran, Captain Gershon Jacques Henry Van Brunt. And Van Brunt looks over the side and says, what are you? And uh, uh, Wordy says, I'm the monitor and I'm here to protect you. And, and Van Brunt looks back down and says, I don't know what you are or what you'll do, but when that thing comes back tomorrow, I will fight my ship and I'll sink before surrender. And Worden says, I will protect you. The next morning at 6 o'clock, the crew of the Virginia wake to have breakfast of two boiled eggs and two jiggers of whiskey. And then the ship gets underway. However, there's a fog across Hampton Roads, which doesn't lift until 8 o'clock. And then the Virginia steams directly towards the Minnesota. They notice what appears to be a barge alongside of the Minnesota. And that barge pulls away from the Minnesota and heads towards them. And when they fire at the Minnesota... That thing will fire at them, and that is the start of a four-hour battle, which is indeed the Battle of the Ironclads. Both ships um, 
uh, have a lot of problems on board them, I will tell you. Number one, the Virginia, uh, she, uh, of course, she's going even slower than before because she has all these holes in her, in her um, uh, funnel. Furthermore, she's leaking because of the loss of her ram, although they don't know the ram's missing. Uh, so also, they've had two of their gun barrels shot off by the Cumberland. Uh, in fact, one of them, they still fire, and when it recoils back, the flames from the firing will catch the inside of the casemate on fire, you know, because the, the Virginia's casemate's four inches of iron, 24 inches of oak and pine backing. Well, nevertheless, so she's got that problem. Plus, the Virginia thought she was going to fight what? wooden sailing warships and so they don't have the proper ammunition actually brooke who invented the brook gun who invented the virginia also decided if i'm going to build an ironclad and build these cannons i'm going to build ammunition that can sink with them and he has invented the first armor piercing shot known as the brook boat where are they well, they're not on board the Virginia, you know. Uh, that's a big problem. So they have the wrong ammunition. In fact, during the battle, KTF Roger Jones walks down the gun deck and he sees uh, John Randolph Eggleston standing behind his gun, snapping his finger every so often. And he comes up to him and says, what is the meaning of this, sir? Why are you not firing your gun? And Eggleston turns and says, well, I find I can do as much damage to that ship by snapping my fingers as firing my guns and powder is precious, sir. Jones walks on. John Taylor Wood comes up to him and says, look, I got an idea. I got a bunch of volunteers. We're going to get us close to that ship. We're going to jump on board, and I'm going to take our coats off. We're going to stuff them down the funnels. We're going to put it over that pilot house, and I got chloroform. We'll throw it into the uh, turret, and we'll take her by boarding. Well, Jones says, well, I'm not so sure of that. But actually, you know, I want to tell you, Jones and Wood know everything about the Monitor because the Monitor's plans have been published in a scientific American magazine in January of 1861. And actually, the Monitor has no small arms on board. So the thought of taking her by boarding that day was a very good one, but it's just kind of hard to get your ship in the right spot. Nevertheless, uh, uh, so anyway, so the Virginia got the wrong ammunition. She's slow. She's leaking. Uh, and so she, she's got problems dealing with the monitor. Likewise, the monitor has a lot of problems. Number one, um, the pilot house is up here. The turret is here. And the speaking tube that leads to the turret does not work. And that's because of all the water coming on board got into the speaking tube. And so it doesn't work. So as a result of that, they have two men, David T Daniel Toffee and William Keeler, who have to go down through the you know, word and we'll see out through these little slits see where the virginia is he'll tell them we want to fire five points to starboard they'll run down through the ship back up into the turret and say we need to fire five points to starboard that's a great thought but you know inside the turret samuel dana green executive officers there he's got these white marks painted around the the inside of the turret so that he can actually turn it stop it and fire where he's supposed to there's a couple of problems Problem number one, you fire your 11-inch dog runs a couple of times, and what's the residue? Black powder, where is it? All over the floor. You can't see those white marks. Number two, he can't see out of the turret except over looking over the gun barrel. So, you know, he really can't see, can't, he can't understand the orders because they get garbled as they're rushing through the ship. And added to that, the mechanism to stop the turret does not work properly because the linking gear had already started to rust because of all the salt water coming on board her the day before. So when they turn on the turret, they can't stop it. So eventually, they'll fire her on the fly, okay? <laughs> now, the big problem is, here's the, the pilot house. The level of the gun's right there. 
So, you know, uh, Green actually leans over, and when he sees a metal object, he orders it to fire it. That's one of the big problems with the monitor. And plus, they're firing half-powder charges. So they can't see what they're shooting. Their fire control is terrible. The battle, however, will be fought in concentric circles as each vessel tries to get the advantage of each other. After an hour and a half, the monitor breaks off action to go bring ammunition back up into her turret. The Virginia then heads towards the Minnesota. That's one ship they know they can destroy. As they're getting close, they run aground, and they run aground away. They can't use their guns. The monitor will come back into action, come right up to her. For the next 30 minutes, they'll pound the side of the, monitor, the Merrimack. However, they don't hit the same spot and they don't do effective damage. Somehow, Ashton Ramsey, the chief engineer of the Virginia, will tie down the safety valves and put on turpentine and waste and everything he can and brings up that engine steam, so he pulls it off the mud bank, and now Jones decides that he's going to ram the monitor. So he takes up after the monitor. All of a sudden, Worden realizes what's happening. He tries to get his vessel out of the way, and the Virginia will hit her with a glancing blow. The trouble is he will have put his ship into reverse. It's because he doesn't want to have happen what happened to the Cumberland and the Virginia. And he hits it just mildly, causing a leak in the Virginia and no damage to the monitor. The monitor will turn around, and that gives an idea to Worden that he should ram the Virginia, because now the Virginia is starting to ride a little high out of the water because of all the usage of the gunpowder and the coal. And he sees that propeller churning, so he knows if he rams the propeller, he will get the Virginia to be dead in the water. So he builds up speed, runs after the monitor of the Virginia, and he's aiming for the fantail. At the last moment, there's a steering malfunction on the monitor. She veers off like that. At that moment, John Taylor Wood in the stern, seven-inch brook gun will fire. The shot will hit the uh, pilot house, blowing the top of the pilot house off. Worden will fall out of the pilot house, shouting, I'm killed, I'm blinded, and the monitor will veer off. Well... Virginia now steams towards the Minnesota. However, the pilots say, look, the tide's going out. We have to go back. And, and he actually talks to his crew uh, officers, and they all say, well, yes, we should get the right ammunition. We should get a little fixed up and then come back and sink all these ships because we can. Meanwhile, so that means the Virginia turns to head towards the Elizabeth River. Meanwhile, the monitor, uh, the when Worden's injured, uh, they will send uh, William Keeler to go get Daniel uh, um, Samuel Dana Green. Green will come back down, sees Worden. Oh, my gosh. Takes Worden into the stateroom. What do you want me to do? He asks Worden. <laughs> Worden says, look, I don't know. I, I, I'm blinded. I, I'm dying. Uh, you, all you need to do is save the Mo Minnesota. So Green says, okay, goes back. Now, the, the monitor is out of action for a half hour. So Green goes back up into the pilot house. Now, imagine standing in the pilot house with half of it gone, and you're going to go after, you know, go and go into battle. So Green's being very brave. He brings his ship next to the Minnesota, but they see the Virginia steaming away. And so the crew of the monitor goes, what? Huzzah! You know, we've defeated the ship. The crew of the Virginia thought they defeated what? The monitor. But actually, it's a drawn battle. Uh, the Virginia um, was victorious because she's going to, for the next two months, block the James River uh, because the high command of the U.S. Navy are going to suffer a dreaded disease for the rest of the spring known as Ram Fever or Merrimack on the Brain. They think that ship is so powerful. The Monitor has won a tactical victory because they stopped the uh, Confederate ironclad from sinking any more wooden ships. But both ships will not survive 1862. The Virginia will be uh, uh, 
will be destroyed because Abraham Lincoln will actually go down to Fort Monroe to orchestrate because, you know, McClellan, as he's moving up during the Peninsula Campaign, gets stuck on the lower peninsula because the Virginia is stopping the Federals from using the James River. So as a result of this, uh, Lincoln comes down because he says, you know, McClellan's the Virginia creeper, and so he'll come down and actually orchestrate the capture of Norfolk, which will cause the Virginia not to have a port. Josiah Tattnall now is the commander of the Virginia, and he says to the crew, we're going to take her out, and we're going to go and attack the entire Union fleet, we're going to go down game. And the officer goes, wait a second, you know, we may get captured, we may get disabled, that might not be very good. Then he says, we're going to take her out to sea and go down to Savannah. And he goes, well, wait a second, you know, uh, we're going to turn turtle if we go out into the ocean. So he then decides to take her up to Richmond. But the ship, because of her draft, can't get light enough. And so on the early morning of May 11th, 1862, the Virginia will be run aground and scuttled by her own crew. In fact, Lincoln watches the whole thing from the parapet of Fort Monroe. And when she blows up, he'll turn to his aide, Egbert Veal, and said, you know, she'd been a thorn in our side for a long time, but now she is gone. Likewise, the Monitor will not survive. The Monitor will participate in her last battle, known as the Battle of Drury's Bluff, on May 15, 1862. She'll prove that she can't elevate her guns, and she'll prove to be, essence, um, not a ship that is as, has the firepower necessary to combat forts, especially well-positioned coastal forts. She will serve through the rest of the Peninsula Campaign, go to Washington Navy Yard, get refitted. Then on Christmas Day, the crew gets a present, which are orders to go to Beaufort, North Carolina. En route there, early morning of December 31st, she'll go down in a gale. And that ends those two ironclads that changed naval warfare forever. There is no doubt that this has a great impact on um, uh, in Civil War navies, without a doubt. Monitors will actually, the last monitor will be stricken from the Navy list in 1937. Uh, and, of course, the Confederates will build many uh, Merrimack-style or Virginia-style vessels. They actually put in the water 21. The U.S. Navy will build 67 ironclads, believe it or not. Their legacy is long-reaching because when you think of turrets on board naval warships, they're sloped armor. They have rifled cannon. They're ironclads. Their compartments are below the waterline. Their engine systems are all steam. The Battle of the Ironclads will influence naval warfare for the next 80 years. So in the words of Franklin Buchanan, I merely want to say to you all, sink before surrender. Thank you. <laughs> Janet, thank you very much for an excellent talk and an appreciation for coming and speaking with us tonight. We'd like to donate in your name $100 to the Big Bethel Project. Huzzah! And uh, could you take a minute or two yeah. and tell us about it? Um, Big Bethel, of course, was the first land battle of the Civil War. Uh, one song was written about it just to encapsulate its history. Butler and I went out from camp at Bethel to make a battle, and then the Southerns whipped us back just like a drove of cattle. Come throw your swords and muskets down, you do not find them handy. At fighting, we're not so good, but at running, we're the dandy. This, <laughs> this June 10, 1861 battle was the first land battle of the Civil War. First time that we see these soldiers stand up and fight each other and actually the battle lasts from 7.30 to 11.30 in that day. And, and of course, the first Confederate infantrymen will be killed there. The battlefield was government property, and most of it was flooded by the building of a reservoir in the late 1890s. However, there still is a redoubt, and uh, 
Uh, also, several monuments have been placed, but now are behind fences and everything. So I've made arrangements with the Air Force for them to give us almost six acres, including that readout. We're going to move the monuments into this park. Uh, the state of Vermont's uh, going to build their own monument because the first Vermont regiment uh, was there, of course, during the uh, war, during that battle, as was the 5th New York, uh, you know, Hiram Zouaves, the 7th New York, uh, several um Fairly, uh, 3rd New York were all there. Uh, 1st West Pointer dies in the battle, John Grebel. Uh, of course, the 1st Confederate Infantryman, uh, Henry Lawson Wyatt, a martyr to the cause, will also die that day. It's the day of the emergence of John Bankhead Magruder. Uh, several generals, future generals will be there. Magruder, Daniel Harvey Hill, James Lane, Hoke, uh, Governor Warren, um, Carr, uh, let's say Durier. Uh, of course, Ebenezer Pierce, who's in command on the battlefield, is, doesn't stay a general much longer, I have to tell you. In fact, uh, he's the only general I know who's a general outbreak of the war who doesn't appear in Warner's Generals in Blue. And so, uh, anyway, uh, it's, its importance is that we see the war is not going to be a simple war. We see it's going to be a bloody war. We also see that uh, it is a place where um, that has been so often forgotten, and yet Big Bethel... It's a place that was on everyone's lips early in the war. It's the first friendly fire of the Civil War, and, and so many other things are all wrapped up in it, and then we realize that this is the start of the bloodshed. Although it would be considered a skirmish by later affairs, it still is uh, an engagement that deserves to have people come and visit. And so uh, I have uh, formed a partnership with the Hampton History Museum, the um, United States Air Force, and the city of Hampton, and several other roundtables. Uh, actually, the Vermont Roundtable, uh, Civil War Roundtable, is donating uh, $10,000 towards uh, the Vermont Monument. Raleigh, North Carolina Civil War Roundtable gave us $2,000 the other day because the first North Carolina is there. And so I do hope that you all will consider uh, making a donation to Big Bethel. Uh, it's, of course, it will be the first preservation project to be finished and opened when the sesquicentennial begins next year. Okay? Any questions? In other words, I'm merely saying yep. thank you. <laughs> yes? I've got a question about, about the, the speech itself, and that is you mentioned the French ship Lavoir and yeah. the British warrior. Did they remain in service for a long time, or were they quickly outmoded? They are, they, they are outmoded, especially the French one. But the warrior still floats. It's in Portsmouth, England. You can go visit it. In fact, there are several ironclads that still exist today. Down in Peru, there's the Huscar, which is... Uh, uh, a monitor-style vessel uh, that was actually surplus U.S. And then there's the Cerebrus, which is in uh, Melbourne Harbor uh, there at, uh, uh, in Australia. I've been to all of them, you know. But, but did the warrior remain in active service? Uh, it remains in active service for 30 years, then becomes a training ship. Um, but she becomes an auxiliary. And somehow she's not scrapped. And then all of a sudden they go, whoa, wait a second. You know, here we have it, you know. And so she's there in Portsmouth with the Victory and several other vessels. Okay. It's a great thing to visit because uh, they still have her original Armstrong guns, and uh, you really start to understand that ship is really transitionary, and, and, and you can start to feel it when you're on board. Um, so it's pretty neat. Yes, sir. Uh, two things. First, would it be accurate to say that in view of the fact that they Virginia kept the Union out of the James River. Number one hand, the battle was a tactical victory for the, for the South. But on the other hand, it was a strategic victory for the North. It was the whole reason for the Virginia resistance was to break the 
Well, the, well, the Virginia was, uh, I think, I think so, uh, was, was the Virginia supposed to break the blockade? And the answer is, um, the Virginia, all Confederate ironclads that are the first ones made, were conceived of breaking the blockade. But then all of a sudden they realized that they don't have the technology to build the ships that are seaworthy enough uh, and with good enough engines that can do that. So they make they, that, that battle, as well as what happens in Port Royal Sound, is going to make the Confederates make their ironclads more defensive ironclads. The Virginia is a success because uh, there's no other ironclad uh, in the Civil War that actually sinks six ships, and the Virginia does. She sinks three transports, one tug, damages another, and then sinks the Congress in Cumberland. And there's no other ship that can say it did that. Ago, I was reading a copy of, of Proceedings, the U.S. Naval Institute's journal, and I noticed a picture in there of a destroyer that a destroyer designed for the future. I don't know if it's actually still being planned or not. And it looked like the freeboard of that ship was not very high above the water. And I thought to myself, maybe somebody was studying Civil War naval history. Well, um, actually, the problem with the monitor is is that it's ahead of its time. It, it, it can't seal itself well enough. So when the water washes across the deck of the monitor, it finds ways of getting into the monitor. That's the problem. You know, if, if we have rubber instead of leather, right, you know, the water's going to find its way through leather. It's not going to find its way through the leather seals that we use today. So that's one important point. Uh, because the, tech, the, the concepts that Erickson used to build the monitor we're right on when it comes to terms of displacement. But the problem is, is that they didn't have the added technology of stopping water getting in between the iron plates or coming down the hatches, even though the hatches are closed, they don't have a, a perfect seal. And, and that therein lies the depth for the monitor. Water comes in through her anchor well, water comes in through her hatches, water comes in through her turret, water comes in everywhere. And they can't stop the turret. And, uh, and the more the water comes in, the sooner the engines, the pumps can't keep up with it, and the engines stop, and she's a goner. And that's what happened to her two times, or actually three times. Two times coming down from New York to Hampton Roads, she just survives by luck. And then, of course, at Hatteras, she's doomed, you know. So, uh, and it, it's just the concept, technology has not kept up with the concept. Okay, any other questions? If not, thank you all. Right. Thank you, John, again. I'd like to remind everyone that you can still uh, buy copies of uh, John's uh, books, so uh, he'd be happy to um, sell them to you. And uh, before we adjourn, I'd like to call up your next president, Ray Radovich. <laughs> it's my great pleasure to present to you your presidential gavel. <laughs> dangerous. Very dangerous. Congratulations. They're your problem now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I was the bus Nazi. This is this may be dangerous. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> um, let's give uh, Tom a round of applause for being a fabulous. <laughs> um, oh, you sent him home. Oh, I sent him home. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this Retreat. meeting is officially. Yeah. Oh. Thank you, Bruce. This uh, meeting is officially adjourned. <laughs> Thank you. Anytime you want to come back. Yeah, yes. It was so enjoyable. Here's your box. Thank you. Tom, I, I didn't get the chat.
I didn't get the chat. Oh, uh, oh, we can send it. I mean, oh, oh, yeah, because uh, our treasurer have a cover letter with it. Oh, oh I thought so, that yeah. was that. Was oh, it is kind of ceremony.